Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. We are here the week of December 5th, 2023 through December 8th, 2023. Um, I don't know. How's it going? I'm tired. It's going. I am tired. You know, we're here on a Friday, which I guess is good. So we're doing this on time. But yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's this time of year when everybody's just, you're busy. You're in that rush towards Christmas. You're doing a lot of things in your personal life. You're doing stuff in your professional life. It's just. You're, you're having to hide those elves. Are you a Christmas present buyer already person? Do you already have No, one? I'm a last minute person. I tried to do I tried to do a little bit better this year since Black Friday's all online and you yeah. don't actually have to physically go into stores, but no, I'm like a you know, December twenty third rushing around. And then I'm a terrible gift giver because then it becomes that point where it's like well, you know, do I just you know buy the the most expensive version of whatever it is and and go with that? I, I'm terrible that way. Yeah, gift cards and cash. Yeah, and gift uh, bags. I don't wrap presents. Oh no, I haven't wrapped. A present I can't wrap a present yeah. to save my life. I I have tried on multiple occasions, and what I end up with is more tape than wrapping paper. I'm essentially just making a paper mache ball. So is this uh, personal to my household? But growing up, uh, things were wrapped in newspaper, which I think is incredibly oh, environmental. Yeah, that's great. It's very. Uh, They're recycling. Yeah, recycling of you, yeah. Is that? Is that? No, that's, no, that's a good thing. No, I, I think you wear that like a badge of honor. No, that's a good thing. I think I've maybe had that before too. It wasn't like it was wrapped in toilet paper. Well, we all wore our potato sack clothes, and we had our. Pajamas. Oh wait a minute! Is this? Uh, yeah, this kind of sounds like a Christmas story I've heard. It okay, is. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Easy, here we tiny are, Tim. Ex parte summary got a couple from the rest of the Supreme Court. Go ahead, Carson. All right. We start with in Ray interest of Jessalina M. and out of home placement. State v. Bixby. This is DUI enhancement. Uh, what is it? And that's it for the ex parte summary. I think you want to go ahead and get started with the first one? Yeah, we'll jump straight into it. And so we start with a uh, petition for further review. So it's always kind of interesting for this podcast. We get an opinion that came before us in the Court of Appeals, and now we get to talk about it again when it goes in front of the Nebraska Supreme Court. And so the issue that we have here is an appeal from a termination of parental rights coming out of Cheyenne County. And the big issues that we have on appeal are uh, whether or not Jessalina had been in out-of-home placement for 15 out of the most recent 22 months, and then also uh, the grounds for uh, termination and best interest. And what we have here, and and this is one of those opinions, you know, I, and maybe this is something we need to do and do in this segment, but that's us kind of putting our opinion. But this is one of those where bright lights around it, you're getting some new law on this opinion. So if you are someone who practices in practices in juvenile law this is a case that you have to read so this is one of those where if you don't listen to any other part of this podcast if you practice juvenile law in the state of nebraska you got to read this opinion and so and so this is one you have to pay attention yes this This is a big one yeah this is a chatterjee case this is one that i think is going to change some things so county attorneys you know, defense attorneys alike, if you practice juvenile law in the state of Nebraska, you need to read this opinion. I, I like uh, sound effects. Can I do a sound effect? Yeah, do a sound effect. Okay, let's see. This let's is hit the, with something. This is the really important case. Really important case today. Ooh, yes. I like that. That's we just good. had the, yeah. All right. Really important case. Really important case. Sirens going off. <laughs> flashing lights. Got to read the Jessalina case. Okay, All so right. now I'll get to, since I've been playing, you know, hide the ball, 
now I'll get to why this is so important. And the reason that this is so important is uh, the Supreme Court gives us a specific determination on a couple of things. One, what does out-of-home placement actually mean? And then two, when is that calculation from? And so we have an interesting set of facts, which is always what it takes to get some interesting law um, and to get some clarification of the law. And basically what happens in this case is a refresher. If you didn't listen to our Court of Appeals version is that Jessalina was born in 2020. Uh, her father was uh, Jose um, and her mother was Samantha and Samantha's the only issue on appeal. She's the one who got terminated. Uh, Jessalina gets removed from Samantha's care two days after she is born. So this is in in early 2020. Uh, there's a juvenile petition that's filed. Um, Jose eventually enters um, a no-fault admission, and then Samantha does the same. They don't do them at the same time, but they both enter uh, two no-fault petitions. And so uh, Jessalina is adjudicated. And then uh, they begin working the case plan. And basically what happens is at some point down the line, um, Jose, it, it seems, kind of gets his life together and gets into a position where uh, she can take placement. So this case originates in uh, Lincoln County in North Platte, is transferred to Cheyenne County uh, when there's some moving. And then uh, Jose had made significant progress. He takes... Um, Oh, takes over care of Jessalina and then uh, basically has completed everything for uh, reunification or is getting close to reunification. At that point in time is when the state and the guardian ad litem move for a termination of Samantha's parental rights. And so the big issue that we have here is that uh, one, when is the 15 out of 22 months calculated? And two, did the does the out-of-home placement clock for 15 out of 22 run while Jessalina was in her father, Jose's care. And so the Court of Appeals uh, found that the clock did not run while uh, Jessalina was in Jose's care, but it, the Court of Appeals found that that didn't matter because the clock started when the petition for termination of parental rights was filed. And at that point in time, even when accounting for the placement with Jose, Jessalina had been in out-of-home placement for more than 15 out of 22. I believe they found that she had been in out-of-home placement for 16 out of 22 months. And so the big issue, we, again, the two issues we have here on appeal are, uh, was the Court of Appeals correct with that out-of-home placement issue? And then was the Court of Appeals correct with uh, when we look back? And so Again, I'm not going to hide the ball here with you. Uh, read the opinion for all the detail and the case law and you know the wrestling around with this statute. But basically, uh, the first thing they address is what does out-of-home placement mean? And here uh, they find and, and clarify, and I believe this is kind of a, a first-time clarification on this issue, is that um, any of these placements, so a placement with a guardianship, a placement with a foster care placement, and a placement with a parent who is not the parent at issue in that matter, so not the parent who which whom which the uh, termination is sought against counts as out-of-home placement. And so that's a, a big thing. That's that's the, the siren going on, on in this opinion. In this case, they found that the placement with Jose still counted as out-of-home placement when calculating the 15 out of 22 
for purposes of termination. And so basically they found here that uh, Jessalina had been in out-of-home placement as to Samantha during any time that she was not placed with Samantha, including the time that she was still under the custody of HHS and was placed with Jose. And so, um, you know, basically here they're saying that this is um, consistent and there there is no reason to distinguish placement with another parent from foster care or guardianship for purposes of out-of-home placement. So guardianship, foster care placement, placement with a parent who is not the parent whom uh, the subject who is the subject of the termination of parental rights action still all count for out-of-home placement. Um, and so then, you know, they they give us that definition on out-of-home placement, and then they also found that the Court of Appeals was correct with determining when the uh, date that we use to calculate the 15 out of 22 months is. And here, uh, basically, the contrast is that Samantha is saying that the date or the trigger date when you should calculate the out-of-home placement should be the date that the court renders its order uh, for the uh, termination. And so here, it, you know, she's basically saying if you're counting from the date when the termination order is and you go back to the out-of-home placement, if the child was with Jose, then there wouldn't have been the 15 out of 22. But uh, basically what the Supreme Court is boiling this down to is saying that the time that we count from is the months preceding the filing of the petition for the termina- for the termination of parental rights. So it either comes at the time that the petition was filed or when the motion is made uh, for a termination of parental rights. And so that is essentially uh, the first step of finding whether those uh, conditions existed uh, prior to either that filing of the petition or the motion. And so uh, the Supreme Court kind of delineates those two issues. Uh, Then they affirmed um, on the best interest finding and basically concluded, again, that that bright line, what out-of-home placement means, and then uh, that we calculate from that time that the petition is filed or that there is a motion uh, for termination of parental rights. And so they affirmed the uh, judgment of the Court of Appeals, but again, gave us a lot of uh, law as far as how they got there. Yeah, that feels big um, because you're going to be able to go after one parent while another parent has custody. And uh, in juvenile court, or at least placement. So that's oh, I yeah, think they pl- get it. Yeah, placement, placement. Not custody. Thank you for the clarification. So that yeah, that's a big one. Um, I'll I'll need to take a look at it. That's the whole point of this podcast, right there. Yeah, is so that if I had a termination on Monday, I would know what I could argue based on what happened on Friday. One hundred percent. And it's one of point. those opinions that you could have a termination on Monday that just got changed by this opinion. Yeah, that's. You need to know that stuff. So that's a good one. Um, I got State v. Bixby, uh, DUI enhancement. So uh, this is out of, uh, let's see, which county is it? Grant County. Uh, Gentleman, Mr. Bixby was convicted. He has a long history of appellate uh, cases on this conviction. He was originally convicted in 2018, and then he had an appeal. It was reversed and remanded, had another um, uh, jury trial for this DUI, which was uh, resulted in a conviction, and then they had an enhancement hearing with the district court. The whole issue here in this um, case is what is the enhancement, and is it enhanceable? 
He had a 2011, um, at the enhancement hearing, the state offered a 2011 certified copy of a DUI first from another county in Nebraska, and then a certified copy of a 2013 DUI in South Dakota. The defendant objected to both uh, the court's receipt of those enhancements um, to enhance it to a third offense. And uh, the court, the trial court, ultimately received those prior uh, convictions or exhibits in demonstrating the prior convictions and sentenced him according to a DUI third. So on the issue for appeal, he argues that there was a um, prior conviction um, and that the dates of the offenses do not legitimately show or definitively show that they were within 15 years um, because the convictions, the the certified copies of what the state offered at the trial court level didn't have anything really in there about when the offense occurred. And since the statute requires the offense to occur 15 years, uh, within 15 years, they didn't have any information of that. So um, the court here does, you know, interesting, uh, you know, some summarization of the, um, what a conviction means and looks at the dates and surmises that uh, the statute of limitations based on those conviction dates um, would necessarily provide that they were within, and at least it resolves it under the predominance, uh, preponderance standard, that it necessarily happened within seven years in South Dakota and 18 months in Nebraska. So they were within the statute of limitations, and therefore they were within the 15 years. And that's how they resolved the, the date issue. The second issue, the uh, defendant raised on appeal was a language of the South Dakota statute, and it says that it would the South Dakota statute for their equivalent of, of driving under the influence was not substantially similar to Nebraska's statute, and therefore, uh, you know, it couldn't have been used as an enhanceable offense. The court goes through the statutory elements and further defines things. And whenever you get any kind of decision on a DUI case defining things or clarifying things or specifying things, especially from the Nebraska Supreme Court, something you need to take a look at if you practice in this area. Um, the third thing that the defendant brought, brought up on appeal, at least the appellant did, was that uh, the court failed to use the lack of a um, attorney or at least lack of evidence of an attorney being present in one of his prior convictions as a, a mitigation. And the state argues that the only uh, mitigation would be to... Um, mitigate the effects of the third enhanceable offense, not vitiate, not get rid of the effects of the um, third enhanceable conviction. So there's really no issue there either. And all of the convictions and sentence were affirmed. That's it for the Nebraska Supreme Court. Yeah, I think that's all we've got. All right, you got to publish from Court of Appeals. I right? do, and we start off with an absolute doozy. And when I say absolute doozy, this is one of these where again, and I'm not even going to do a great job of summarizing. I'm going to be, you know, just frank with everybody. This is an opinion that is incredibly heavy. I think it's potentially going to have some long-reaching tentacles, and it might be one of those opinions that we see, you know, either getting some clarification from the Supreme Court and a petition for th- further review, or you know, one of these opinions that we are going to see uh, result in some legislative action. But basically... Is it siren-worthy? Nah, let's... It's alarm-worthy. Yeah, yeah, it's alarm-worthy. Yeah, 
Okay, the alarm one siren per episode, unless I mean it's going to have to be special <laughs> to get two sirens per episode. <laughs> no, so, that, and that was worthy of a siren. Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right, this is an alarm. This is alarm, and I, I, maybe if you're a law enforcement officer, it might be a siren, but we'll see. Um, so this is an appeal, uh, or I guess I don't even think I said the name of the case. So we have State versus Hain. Uh, this is an appeal from the Scotts Bluff County District Court's order affirming a conviction of driving under the influence, um, and basically what we have on appeal or the big issue on appeal is uh, the overruling of a motion to suppress. And so the facts, which are super important in this case, are that a citizen had reported a white pickup that was all over the roadway, which was located outside the city limits of Minotaur, Nebraska. And so at that point in time, a police officer uh, for Minotaur, a Matt Rockwell, leaves the city limits to investigate. After crossing the city line, Officer Rockwell observed a white pickup truck making a wide turn and uh, straddling the center line and driving into the median while an occupant threw cans out of the driver's side window. At that point in time, Officer Rockwell stopped the vehicle, which be, was being driven by Hain, and following the stop, which occurred outside the city limits of Minotaur, but within Scotts Bluff County, uh, he administers uh, field sobriety and eventually, uh, char- the, eventually, as a result of this stop, Hain is charged with uh, driving over the influence of... Um, over 0.15 and then eventually that is changed to an amended first offense driving under the influence uh, 0.08 or over and so there's a motion to suppress based on uh, a stop in violation of fourth amendment fourth and 14th amendment uh, protections of the constitution and then also the nebraska constitution and any other relevant uh, nebraska revised statutes and so basically the issue here is whether or not Rockwell had probable cause to uh, stop the vehicle when he was outside of his jurisdiction. And so after the suppression, the county court uh, denied the suppression, finding that the state had proper authority to make a traffic stop upon observing the driver driving through the median, taking a wide turn, driving across the center line, and then all of the uh, field sobriety things that had happened with the officer and basically said the county court said that after a careful examination of the evidence concerning the stop and arrest of Haynes shows that the motion to suppress is without merit and that there was sufficient evi- evidence justifying the traffic stop and the arrest is supported by ample evidence of probable cause. So then there's a stipulated bench trial, which affirms the county court. There is then an appeal or um, in the county of court that in the county court then there's appeal to the uh, district court in uh, which case the district court uh, affirmed the county court and properly denying the suppression and affirmed his uh, conviction okay so you know maybe you're hearing this this sounds like every opinion why is this such a big case big big you know headline of this case uh, you know if we had an ex parte summary with the court of appeals the issue here and the entire issue of this case is the lawfulness of the stop when an officer is outside of his jurisdiction and does not witness the probable cause event happening inside of their jurisdiction. So you're not following someone who committed a crime within your jurisdiction and then stopping them outside of your jurisdiction. The question is, can you make a probable cause stop and detention when you when everything that you witnessed or the probable cause to create that stop occurred outside of your jurisdiction? 
And basically, again, we go through a ton of law here. Uh, I didn't realize this before reading this opinion, but Section 29215 is what provides for the authority and powers of law enforcement officers in this state. And with DUIs, we're focusing on uh, Section 3. And basically what Section 3 says is that when there is probable cause uh, out to exist that a person is operating uh, a vehicle under the influence, um, an officer has the power or combination to uh, transport an individual to a facility to administer um, administer outside of the uh, law enforcement officer's primary jurisdiction any post-arrest test advisement to the person, um, and then also uh, the ability to uh, basically... Um, the ability to uh, carry on any other procedures and like taking this person to a jail or doing something like this. And so the the uh, appellant in this case takes one position of basically saying that uh, the officer should have no authority outside of their jurisdiction to do any of this. The state basically takes a broad look and says that an officer, because of uh, being able to um, enforce DUIs outside of their jurisdiction should have their uh, plenary powers basically saying they should be able to do anything and the Court of Appeals takes a pretty narrow uh, reading of this and basically say uh, that they read uh, 29215.3c which is what addresses officers powers outside of their jurisdictions in, re in regards to DUIs as saying that um, an officer only has uh, these limited scope things when, um, when supported by probable cause and basically uh, what the Court of Appeals comes to uh, find here is that even though um, Officer uh, Rockwell had probable cause to stop Haynes' pickup, um, he lacked jurisdiction. And so therefore, uh, because of the fact that he lacked jurisdiction to conduct the stop, they basically here have to determine whether or not the exclusionary rule uh, requires suppression of the evidence obtained as a result of the stop, detainment, and uh, arrest of Haynes. So here they find uh, that if you, um, even if you had probable cause to stop here, if you were outside of your jurisdiction, the Nebraska statutes does not give an officer the power uh, to stop, to d detain, and to arrest someone who is uh, committing a crime outside of their jurisdiction or th who they believe is uh, has committed a DUI outside of their jurisdiction. And so then we deal with the exclusionary rule. And basically, what we're dealing with the exclusionary rule is we're trying to figure out if um, this is something that is uh, so... Um, protected or um, is uh, so inherent to someone's uh, right to privacy that it would require uh, being excluded as evidence um, against that individual. And basically what the uh, Court of Appeals comes to conclude is, in this case is that even though uh, Officer Rockwell's actions were conducted without uh, jurisdictional authority, uh, this statute had never been construed by a Nebraska appellate by a Nebraska appellate court, and so therefore, Officer Rockwell had uh, reason to believe that he had jurisdiction and authority to stop Hain, and so therefore, Rockwell's actions were not deliberate, reckless, or in gross uh, negligent disregard for the Fourth Amendment, and so therefore, uh, when applying that culpability standard to the exclusionary rule. Even though this was something that violated Haynes' constitutional rights, it was not something that was so 
and, you know, not pun intended given Haynes' name, but it was not so heinous as to warrant exclusion in this matter. And so uh, it's very similar to a DUI case that we had that came out of Lancaster County a while uh, back, basically here because this is something that is now just having statutory interpretation. Essentially, the Court of Appeals is saying that, you know, Rockwell could reasonably believe that he maybe had this power, and so therefore they found uh, that although the stop, detainment, and arrest of Hain violated his constitutional rights, the facts did not support application of the exclusionary rule. And so because Rockwell had probable cause before stopping Hain and his conduct did not rise to the level of deliberate, reckless, or grossly negligent uh, disregard of the Fourth Amendment rights, the deterrence benefits of suppression do not outweigh the costs, and therefore they do not apply the exclusionary rule and affirm Rockwell's uh, conviction of the DUI. And I will just note, and again, we have an opinion that's like this, uh, Judge Bishop, Bishop writes a five-page concurrence in this case, basically agreeing with the state's position in regards to interpretation of that uh, Nebraska Revised Statute 29215.3c uh, in regards to law officers' powers when outside of their jurisdiction having probable cause. Um, and so, again, another one of these opinions that I think you're going to want to read. Uh, it, you know, I don't know if it's going to dictate something coming from the legislature, if it'll be something that will get cleared up um, in a petition for further review or something like that. But I do think this is uh, a very interesting opinion, especially for anyone in relation to law enforcement or anyone who's dealing uh, with now one of these criminal cases, because I guess basically law enforcement is on notice at this point in time. So theoretically, uh, the ex exclusionary exclusionary rule would apply to subsequent cases, even though it didn't apply here. At least that's my reading. Wow. Um, yeah, I think... Sorry, that was, that was a long one, man. I've just... No, it's okay. Uh, it, it's an important one, because I think that it shows that that one probably needs to get cleaned up. Yeah, somebody's got to clarify something here. Yeah. It's going to be a real, real messy area for law enforcement. Legislature or uh, Nebraska Supreme Court needs to probably figure that one out. But uh, that was very important. Again, that's an alarm bell. Uh None of mine are alarm bells. I feel I feel so tainted. <laughs> uh, they are all important cases. They're all, I know, but all yours are important. Uh, and no, they're, listen, they're, yeah, they're all important. But yours got alarms. Um, this is possession, uh, Steve E. Malcolm. This is possession of a firearm by a prohibited person. The uh, issue here at the trial court level was um, there was a gentleman who was convicted of possession of a firearm. And so... Uh, sentenced to five to seven years imprisonment he claims that there was insufficient evidence that a motion to suppress should have been granted and that his sentence was excessive and he also claims six uh, claims of ineffective assistance of trial counsel so the, the the crux of this whole thing is the warrant was issued for apartment one uh that was where his residence was where mr malcolm's residence was uh, apartment one and apartment 13 share a wall and uh, they share a wall by this kind of removable screw drywall situation i don't know um how i pictured it in my head but there was like it, it wasn't really like a wall wall it was like a suggested wall <laughs> i guess you could say and and so they removed the law enforcement removed the drywall and then they found the firearm and uh, there were another rather other issues here, too. The motion to suppress on the underlying uh, at the trial court level was um, denied. And at the trial, the trial counsel at that point failed to object to the evidence coming in at trial. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, 
he was um, claims on appeal that that was uh, ineffective assistance of counsel. The court goes through and has, you know, we're basically witness by witnesses as what happened at trial in order to show that there was sufficient evidence for this individual to be convicted of uh, possession of a firearm by a prohibited person. They ended up stipulating that he was a, a felon so that they didn't have that element. So there were other things that they needed to prove in order to show the sufficiency of evidence. The motion to suppress uh, was granted and they do an anal- uh, they do analyze the motion to suppress under the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. They, and, and they go into it pretty, uh, pretty deeply. They say it was unclear what constituted apartment one. Um, so apartment one, it may have been apartment 13. We're not really sure. Um, so they found no merit to the ineffective assistance of counsel for failing to uh, object to the evidence coming in at trial following the motion to suppress that was granted. And then they show uh, the defendant had a key also to apartment 13. So he had access to apartment 13. But the warrant did say just apartment one. So that is something. All the other ineffective assistance of counsel claims and the sentence was not excessive and therefore it was affirmed. Okay, next case we come to is Fleece versus Burnett. And you know what? We finally, it's been, there we go. I know you were waiting for it. Oh, I know I was waiting for it. it. It's been a bit, but you know, we got a cow case back and you know, somehow when they come, they just fall to me. So uh, we, start, we start out with uh, Fleece versus Burnett, which is on appeal um, from an alleged breach of the Agusters agreement um, between uh, Greg Fleece and Dale Lind and then Clifford Burnett and the validity of a UCC financing statement filed by uh, Fleece and Burnett. And this uh, appeal is on an appeal from a bench trial uh, in the District Court of Custer County, which is a proper place to have a cow case come from, uh, if I ever have heard of one. And basically the big issue on appeal here uh, was the fact that Fleece and then um, Lind had had Burnett caring for a bunch of their cattle, uh, and at some point a bunch of cattle go missing and they don't know why. And basically Burnett says that a bunch of them died in a couple of horrible storms, um, and then Fleece and Lind essentially are alleging that Burnett had began branding their cattle with his own brand, were not keeping proper track of them, and that it had uh, resulted in some pretty severe damages uh, for them. Uh, The district court had found uh, in the uh, favor of Fleece and Lind in the amount of $851,000 for Fleece and then $127,000 for Lind. Uh, And the issue on appeal uh, was... First, uh, basically, Burnett argues that it should not have uh, been uh, his burden as far as uh, having to uh, brand these cattle and then uh, the branding uh, method that he had employed and that um, Fleece had never taken steps to enforce uh, strict contract terms for identifying the cattle. Uh, Here, the Court of Appeals disagreed and agreed with the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, or with the Court of Appeals basically saying that uh, Burnett had said that he was branding their cattle with uh, his brand in 2014 um, and that Fleece had objected to that multiple times um, and had basically uh, even purchased a replacement brand in 2017 so that they could properly distinguish whose calves were whose. Uh, And so they found that the district court did not err in finding that Burnett had breached uh, his cow share agreement by branding them uh, differently. 
Uh, and then the other interesting one that came in, and maybe this is kind of where the value of the case was, was who uh, the uh, burden of the death loss requirement was on. And basically, Burnett here was saying uh, that it should not have been his burden uh, to prove the death losses uh, were not caused by negligence. Um, and they he basically found that uh, it was error by the district court putting this burden on him. And what the Court of Appeals says here is not that the the issue before the district court was not uh, what had caused the alleged uh, death loss, but whether the death losses claimed by uh, Burnett actually occurred. Uh, and here the district court found that Burnett had failed to establish that large-scale death losses, uh, which he claimed accounted for the differences in pricing and accounting and, and herd numbers, uh, had occurred. And so that was the issue uh, for the uh, district court. And, you know, it wasn't the fact that he couldn't prove that, you know, anything had happened. It was basic or that uh, the amount, it was basically that these large uh, scale death losses had even occurred to begin with. Um, and then Burnett had made a tortious interference claim, a slander claim, um, and then a damages and compensation claim. And basically the uh, court of appeals says that he failed to elicit any facts which would have uh, supported those. And then there was an issue regarding the withdrawal of Burnett's counsel, uh, but there was nothing in the record uh, to indicate basically why that was allowed to happen uh, or any of the complexities uh, that had resulted in that withdrawal. And so therefore the court of appeals affirmed. This is in Ray guardianship of Kane M uh, Cecilia G versus Anita M. I think this one's interesting. Um, it is a guardianship that was attempted to be dissolved by a biological mother uh, in favor of the grandmother who has uh, present custody of her grandchild, which is the bio mom's child. The bio mom and the bio dad were California residents and they came here um, to visit grandma and then COVID happened and they were stuck here for a while in Nebraska. Um, so bio mom and bio dad and grandma were stuck in Nebraska. And then once things started uh, lifting up a little bit, they decided to leave the child in Nebraska because school was starting in Nebraska and California hadn't started school yet. So they had a guardianship established for grandma so that she could get him enrolled in school and they um, kind of left him there in, in that instance. And then father, bio father, passed away. And bio mom had sporadic visitation, I think it was uh, every summer, she was having eight weeks of visitation, and even though she was supposed to handle all the travel and uh, come on out to Nebraska to see him and then bring him back when it was done, Grandma actually ended up doing all of that. So um, the issue here, after the father passed away, mother, bio mom, came to Nebraska and said, hey, uh, we're done with the guardianship. Uh, we need to dissolve it, and I am a fit parent. Give me custody. The facts here are interesting. Uh, I'm not going to go into them in detail, um, but I do have a question. Do you know what lean is? I, I know your rap knowledge is, and you're you're more into yeah, that. Yeah, I know what lean is. What is lean? Uh, lean is when you mix uh, generally Sprite uh, with pseudoephedrine. Or uh, codeine? cough syrup. Codeine. codeine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's defined by our court of appeals in this opinion. Some lean. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know what lean was. Yeah. I'm not hip. And so they uh, showed me what lean was. And then uh, they what further, there was obviously that involved bio mom. So there were some allegations there that bio mom was in using that substance and that the uh, new 
the father of her newest child uh, smoked marijuana on a daily basis and um, there were some screenshots that didn't have proper authentication or at least it was alleged that didn't have proper authentication and then they also alleged judicial bias and they alleged the finding of unfitness um, mom was found unfit here and I, I think that's interesting. And the court is, is pretty specific in saying that any one of these things that mom had issues with isn't probably sufficient to show unfitness. But the totality of all of these things together uh, does show a present unfitness. And they're, they're very clear on that. But uh, I think you get some good definitions here and some things that are important to look at and not important to look at and how screenshots or, or other social media information might need to be used in order for authentication purposes and for purposes of a civil proceeding like a guardianship or something. But all of those um, were found uh, without merit and mothers. Um, the guardianship was, was um, not terminated. Mom was presently found to be unfit and the county court was affirmed. Okay, I think we're to our final opinion, which yes. is State versus uh, Blanco, and this is an appeal from the District Court of uh, Scotts Bluff County for a conviction of first-degree first sexual assault of a child, uh, for which Blanco was sentenced to um, 40 to 60 years imprisonment with 15 um, of those to be uh, mandatory. And so the big issue on appeal is uh, whether or not a uh, FaceTime call from the victim to her cousin uh, was uh, covered under the excited utterance hearsay objection. And as, uh, you know, again, another one of these cases where in, in some valuable law in here as far as hearsay goes, but uh, the entire key with the excited utterance uh, is the uh, fact that it was uh, made while still under uh, the condition uh, that led to the excitement. And so here there must have been a startling event. The statement must relate to the event and the statement must have been made by the declarant while still under the stress of the event. Um, and so here, uh, again, as the uh, Court of Appeals has uh, done before, Supreme Court has done before, the key requirement for the excited utterance is the spontaneity, um, which requires the showing that the statements were made without time for conscious reflection. Um, and here they show that uh, LM was, uh, even though she had uh, called the uh, victim, even though she had called her cousin uh, the uh, day after the alleged event, um, this was still a situation where it had only been a few hours uh, which had passed between the assault um, and her uh, statement to her cousin within that period of time um, was uh, still within that uh, spontaneity. And basically she, the... Uh, Court of Appeals says that the record here uh, still uh, conclusively demonstrated that she was under the effects of this event, uh, which is the key. Uh, and so while on that uh, call, uh, she was still under the effect and all of the things that uh, she told her cousin uh, were therefore covered under that excited utterance um, exception. And so therefore, the Court of Appeals affirmed. It's weird to, uh, it's weird to do this with the sun going down. Yeah, it is. <laughs> What's Very going odd with the sun. Yeah, my office is getting dark. Oh my gosh, so dark. Hey, you know what? You know what? This is special. Uh, we've been doing this a year. We have a year. That is, yeah. weeks. You know what? Uh, pat on the back to you, Mr. Brand. Oh, you missed two, Mr. Messer Smith. This is uh, 
this is a joint effort and it, we've done it for a year we have a uh, over 30 hours of us talking wow <laughs> which means if you are new to this podcast enjoy. enjoy you know that sounds like a lovely thing to do over the holidays if you just can't get enough of us and chicken reviews yeah. and all kinds of fun yeah stuff. All, yeah just just great thing if you're you know like my mother and you're here for the quips you know it's not quite 30 <laughs> hours but enjoy you know maybe go back. Well, first of all, go back to episode one for that disclaimer, yes. right? That's yeah, really always important. episode one. Always episode one. And then if you want to just let it roll. Yeah, then, you know, enjoy us. And, yeah, let us let us uh, cover your uh, cover your ears and joy for this holiday uh, uh, season. Why not? Well, we're, we'll keep doing this for a while. Yeah, I don't, I don't see any reason in stopping. We might invite uh, somebody else to come in every now and then, you know. No, I'm not letting you out. No, well, I'm just saying, like, yeah, uh, I'm but, allowed to have things yeah someday <laughs> maybe i don't know we'll see we'll see where things are going but anyway go back to episode one for the disclaimer this and is... thank you to everyone who's listened oh absolutely you gotta say that before yes thank you for everyone who's listened uh we appreciate you guys greatly so very much thank you for keeping this going it's been very fun um so that's point two law review brought to you by anderson klein brewster and brandt offices in holdridge minden and carney have a great week everybody thanks everybody <laughs>